opportunity or I'll probably skip over. And if there's something in particular you'd like me to address, just kind of look at those notes kind of like a menu. And, you know, if you want to put in an order for uh, would you say something about this or tell me about that, I mean, I'd be happy to do that. Because I want to do, do this in a rather laid back, you know, casual manner. This is not some, you know, uh, stiff lecture, I hope. Uh, I just want to kind of just interact with you guys, and we're going to talk about church history. Obviously, you see where your notes begin. They actually begin in 30 A.D., which would be at the death of Christ, uh, and that's just a, a point in time to begin. But really, it's not quite sufficient to begin there. you got to kind of go back in history. How many of you know you can't just drop into a middle of, of time and pick up things from there without knowing what had gone on previous to that. You have to have a little bit of understanding of the history that built up to that. So I want to take a few minutes and just talk about what, what came about before Christ. What set the stage for Christ? And then, after Christ, what was the world like that they were, they were dealing with? And so I really, I'm going to use the board here a little bit, and um, I'm going to go back to, um, back to around 516 B.C. Because what happened in 516 B.C. was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. The Jews had been taken into captivity about 100 years earlier than that uh, by the Babylonians, and um, they now had returned back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple there. And, and you really cannot understand some of the things that we encounter even in the Gospels, really, without understanding what had taken place in the thinking of the, of the rabbis in the thinking of the Jewish people, how they looked at certain books of the Bible, and even how they looked at things like the book of Enoch and some of these other books. I'm not going to be able to get into that today, but that is very interesting because this is called, this, this is called Second Temple Judaism. And it's out of Second Temple Judaism that we have ultimately um, the time in which Christ lived. This period of time lasted, that temple lasted, to 70 A.D. Now, when we get into studying eschatology and so forth, you'll find this 70 A.D. period is very, very important. But we have what took place there. The most significant, though, thing after all this really came along in the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, um, around, um, let's see, it would have been around 350. Let's, that's a round figure, but that's close enough. Around 350 B.C., began conquering the then-known world. And uh, when, when Alexander went out to conquer... 
And he brought together all the Greeks to raise this army. One of the things he realized was they didn't all speak the same language. I mean, there was different types of Greek languages. Now, in order to have an army that is going to conquer, you've got to be able to give them orders and know that those orders are understood. So having a common language was very, very important. So what Alexander the Great commissioned um, some scholars to do was to create a Greek language, a common Greek language became known as Koine Greek. Koine meaning common. And so this language was created, and with that Greek language, everywhere they conquered, everyone was, was supposed to learn that language. When they conquered, you know, Alexander the Great conquered the then known world, conquered all the way to India. And, and everyone that came under his rule was forced to learn Koine Greek. Well, 300 years later, that becomes very important, doesn't it? Because as we begin looking at the, the, the Bible, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. That enabled the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letters to Corinth or Colossae or uh, Philippi, he was able to write in that language, send it to them, and everybody understood it because it was the universal language. And so, you know, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Christ came. See, God had everything in order for when Christ comes on the scene. God had set everything in its proper place. And one of those things that was set in proper place was the language. The language of Koine Greek. Now, now because the Jews in the Palestine area were forced to learn that language... And not only were they forced to learn the language, they were also forced to kind of adapt to Greek culture. One of the things about the Greeks was that they, when they, when they conquered a people, they wanted to Greekify them. That's called Hellenization, coming from the, the Greek word for Greece is Hellas, and Hellenization means uh, the, the Greekifying, if I could use that term of the people. And so the Jews were Greekified to a large degree. That's what led ultimately to the rebellion in the time of Judas Maccabees when a group of Jews rise up against the Greeks uh, who were at that time led by Antiochus Epiphanes who was a wicked, evil man. He had taken the, uh, he had, with the temple in Jerusalem, he had gone in and he had re, uh, put the, uh, uh, the idol of Jupiter in there, had uh, sacrificed a pig upon the altar to desecrate it and all, and was really trying to impose 
the Greek religion as well upon the Jews. They were forbidden to uh, refuse to eat pork and so forth. So you had all these things going on. Judas Maccabees uh, rises up against that, and ultimately the Greeks are overthrown. Um, and there's a period of time, there's a period of time in the, in the Palestine area where they actually are under self-rule. But then in 63 A.D., yeah, the 63 B.C., I'm sorry. Thank you. In 63 B.C., Pompey the Great, the Roman general, comes in and conquers the area. And so they come under Roman rule. When the Jews came under Roman rule, the Romans learned from the Greeks. The, what the Romans learned from the Greeks was that not to seek to impose ourselves and our culture upon the Jews because they are too stubborn, they are too rebellious, and if you try to force them to be like us, all we're going to have is problems. And at that time, about 10% of the Roman Empire was made up of Jews. Most of the Jews, by the way, did not live in the Palestine area. The vast number of Jews actually were in Alexandria, Egypt, which was that city created by Alexander the Great around 330 B.C., and that became the cultural center for the Greeks. It became the, well, there was a great library, the library of, uh, of uh, Alexandria, which contained uh, probably around, I think, 400,000 scrolls. I mean, it was a huge library that they had created there. And uh, that's where most of the Jews lived. In the time of Jesus, the, one of the most well-known Jews was a man by the name of Philo, who uh, was a Jewish philosopher. Uh, we have many of his writings and stuff available today. But he was a, 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 uh, uh, a, he was a Greekified Jew. He, though he was a Jew, hi, glad to have you with us today. Though he was a Jew, he had been greatly influenced by, by the Greeks and really sought to kind of bring together a lot of Greek philosophy along with the, the Judaism. And so really, when you look at the time of Jesus, you really had two sets of Jews. You had those who had really adapted a lot to the Greek culture, and you had those who were very much... Uh, what we would call Hebraic Jews. They were the ones that, that still held to their, their traditions in a very stringent kind of way. The Pharisees would be a, a, an example of that kind. Uh, in 63 AD, though, the Romans conquered. One of the things the Romans did was, they said, well, we can't impose our culture on them. So they made certain concessions to the Jews. One of the concessions that they made to the Jews was that they did not have to sacrifice to the idols. Whenever the Romans conquered someone, they made them, uh, they made them sacrifice at least once a year 
to the, to the Roman gods. And all that really meant was to take a little bit of uh, incense and throw it into the, the fire, and that was sufficient to say that you had worshipped that Roman god. But the Jews would refuse to do that. The, the Jews would, would rather die than to submit to that. And so the Romans said, hey, we're not going to make them do that. We're going we're to give them a special dispensation. They don't have to sacrifice to that. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it is, it's very interesting to me. This is just a, 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 a you know, as, as we look at history, the Roman Republic had, had collapsed in the time of Julius Caesar. When the Julius Caesar and the civil war that Caesar brought about brought an end to the Roman Republic. It was no longer what it once was. It now was a Roman Empire. And the first Roman Emperor was Augustus, who happens to be the Roman Emperor when Jesus is born. And so you have the rise of the Roman Caesars at the same time as you have the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Now, what we need to recognize is that New Testament church, in its initial stages, was predominantly Jewish, and it was birthed in that Roman Empire. It was birthed under the rule of the Roman Caesars, and they began to proclaim another king. The Christians refused to say what was the common practice that was forced by this time upon everyone to simply say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians refused to say that. Really, what brought about the persecution of Christians in the first few centuries was political more than religious. It was, the, it was that they would not take the political stand of declaring the supremacy of the Roman Caesar. Instead, they said, Jesus is Lord or Christ is Lord. And so that became the central focus of ultimately the persecution of the Christians in the, in the very birthing of the church. Any questions on any of that? I, I'm, I, I know you're all writing notes and seem very studious and everything, but I, I, I'm not opposed at all to you asking questions and, and having some kind of interaction with you, okay? This is, I just don't want to give a, a strict, you know, lecture here today. I, yes. Yeah. Good. So, can you help us see how that same, it seems that that same dynamic plays out today? Um, is that, can you see that? Like, I think uh, that what you saw in the, in, even in the birthing of the church, 
is this struggle between who is in authority. That's always the struggle. The always the struggle is who is in who is the authority that uh, that we are going to look to. Is it going to be the authority of the state government, or is it going to be the authority of Christ? That's the question that Christians have faced down through the ages. It's not only in the beginning. You can trace all through church history this, this, this same scenario played out over and over and over again. It's the same scenario that was ultimately played out, you know, uh, in the Protestant Reformation as well and the, and the period of time following that. Uh, you know, who is our allegiance to? And the state will always call men to allegiance that challenges us as Christians. I think a challenge, that's a challenge for us today. Even as Americans, that's a challenge. I'm, you know, to be very honest with you, I'm very concerned about American Christianity and its, its, um, its allegiance to this nation in an improper kind of way. I say that as somebody who considers himself a patriotic person. But I think, there's, I think we have to realize where those lines need to be carefully drawn. And, you know, and I think we, learn, we can learn some lessons from studying the history of the church in regards to that. Any other questions or, or anything? Let me, let me just quickly talk about this period of time under A, the New Testament church. where we have the birthing of the church. Basically, what we're looking at there, and, and everything that we have, with the, with, for the most part, what we have there, except for the last two points, we find addressed directly in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us, obviously, about the early persecution of the church, which at that time was not by the Romans, but by the, by the Jews. It uh, tells us about um, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It talks about the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. This is the first 40-year period of the church that is very, very significant. Um, and I say 40-year period the reason I say that is because most scholars agree that, that Jesus was not born in 1 or 0 A.D., that he was born earlier than that, 3 or 4 B.C., meaning that he started his ministry at um, the age of 30, ministered for three and a half years, so he would have ascended into heaven in 30 A.D., that makes that gap between 30 and 70 70 thanks John that would have made that gap 40 years right are you breathing 
Am I right? 40 years, right? 40 years in, 40 years in the Bible is a significant number, isn't it? I mean, if you read the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness. Um, uh, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is significant there. 40 is, is a significant number. It's, it's, it's got several meanings, but one of the meanings of it in the Bible is it's the, it's the, uh, it's the number of judgment. When Christ, when Christ ascended in 30 A.D., it was 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. What we do know from history that is irrefutable is that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Why is that important? It's important, and you'll see this as we get into talking about eschatology, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. for all practical purposes brought an end to Judaism. Now, when I say that, I know that, what do you mean it brought an end to Judaism? Well, central to Judaism was the temple. Without the temple, without the priesthood, how can Judaism then be practiced as a religious system any longer without that being, being there? See, it then becomes nothing but a religious philosophy. And see, that's why the Bible speaks in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. It says, that which is, being, that, that which is old and becoming obsolete is ready to disappear. Uh, Hebrews 8.13. So when the temple was destroyed, that brought about a major, major shift. Um, and it's what Jesus was primarily talking about, by the way, in Matthew 24, about that destruction of that temple. Now we'll come back to talking about some things you know, relating to that as we move along. But, but that's, that, was, um, that was significant. By, again, there's the question whether, whether there was the completion of the entire New Testament by 70 A.D. There's only a couple books that come into question that weren't completed by then. Some have questioned whether the book of the Revelation was completed by then. Some believe that even the Gospel of John came along a little bit light, later. But the, uh, there's a host of scholars who believe that the whole Bible was, as the New Testament as we know it, was already completed by, by 70 A.D. It was not, though, at that point, it did not become um, recognized as the books of the Bible officially by the church until, until much later. But that's the period of time we read about, as I said, primarily in the book of Acts and so forth. And that's the period of church history that uh, we probably would be the most familiar with, you know, in that sense. But it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. And what we have in the book of Acts, and I think this is an important point, what we have in the book of Acts, is 
the birthing of the New Testament church. And what do we see when we look at that church in the New Testament, both in the book of Acts and in the epistles of, of Paul and the other apostolic writers? What do we see about that church? What are, some of the, what are some of the characteristics that we see about the church? Well, we see that the church was, was structured under the leadership of apostles, prophets. Ephesians chapter 4 says um, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's what has been described as the fivefold ministry which made up the ministry gifts of that New Testament church. We see that they had the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation within those churches. They had prophecies. They had healings. They had the supernatural things going on within that church. We see that they were very simple in terms of their structure. Um, at that time, most of them met in houses or in rented halls. You know, they didn't have buildings. In fact, the church didn't have buildings until, um, until after, after 300 and some A.D. The church was very, very simple in many ways. It didn't become the complicated organizational structure that it later became. And so this New Testament church that we read about, here's the question that, that scholars debate. Was that New Testament church to be a pattern? Or was that simply an embryonic stage of the church? That it was ultimately to grow into something else. But what we read about there is only the church in an embryonic form. Does the Bible teach us that that was the pattern church that God designed it to be? And so you have people, for instance, I mean, there are many people who, would, who today would say, well, it was only embryonic. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, and this is not an attack on them or anything, but they would say, well, it was only embryonic. Look at what we have now. I mean, think about the, the structure that you have within Roman Catholicism. You have bishops and archbishops and cardinals and the pope and the whole Vatican structure and, and how that goes out. How many of you know that's, a, that's, one, that's one big organization? That's hardly a simple structure. And they said, well, you know, again, what we have in the book of Acts was kind of like an acorn, and now we have the oak tree. That's one view. But... There's the view that says, no, what we have in the book of Acts was what God designed from the very beginning. 
and we have deviated from that, we have lost many of the things that was central to those in the, in the book of Acts, and that what, what God is going to do is to restore what was lost over the course of time. Now, my perspective is that it was the pattern church and that what we have in the beginning, gradually, not immediately, but gradually was lost. Now, so my, my approach to looking at church history is, 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 is simply this, that what we have, this is the beginning, and there is a downward decline until we get to the time that we'll talk about, the Protestant Reformation in, in 1517 A.D. From the time of the Protestant Reformation, there has now been an upward incline in terms of the restoration of truth. If you ask me, where do I think God is going? I think God is going to bring the church ultimately in time back to what we read about in the book of Acts. See, church history, I've just said it this way at times, it is, it is, the, it is the study of back to the future. How many of you understand what I'm saying there? The future is that we're going back to what we had in the book of Acts. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that, but I want you to know where I'm coming from, see? And I, I think it is very interesting that, you know, I mean, you see, how many of you know the United States is not the center of Christianity any longer. We like to still think we are, but the reality is I don't think we are the center of Christianity. I think the center of Christianity has moved eastward. I think what's going on in, in Asia, what's going on uh, in um, the Pacific Rim, all, is more of this where, where, where there is a, how many of you know there's a lot we could learn from them? <laughs> Let's just put it that way. See, the church in China, which has, you know, even, even uh, you know, uh, cautious statistics, it has a hundred million born-again Bible-believing Christians. And it's not structured under denominations. It's not structured in the way that the Western church has there. It's not divided up. It is much more like what we read about in the book of Acts. See? Now, how did that come about? Well, that came about when the communists came in and persecuted the church. It shook things up. Some things need to be brought down in order for something to be rebuilt. You know, I don't... I say this, I don't know that you can even have a New Testament church without it being persecuted. The persecuted church is the New Testament church. See, 
I mean, the church was birthed in persecution, and its greatest growth has always been in persecution. So, as we look, that's why, you know, in your notes, it's kind of divided up in this way, that what we see over these first 1,500 years is the, is the gradual loss of things. Now, they weren't lost immediately, but there was the loss of, the loss of these ministry gifts. They end up being replaced with ecclesiastical offices. They end up being replaced with, with cardinals and bishops and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and there was the loss of the spiritual gifts. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit were, were, were lost. They didn't totally disappear. But in that first 1,500 years, they began to become more and more declining. And when we see the Protestant Reformation beginning, actually it began before 1517, but in 1517 when, when Martin Luther, who has been deemed to be the father of the Protestant Reformation, nailed the 95 theses to the, to the Wittenberg church door, we mark that as the point in time where the Protestant Reformation began and we see truth being restored to the church. One of the great truths that Luther saw, which we will talk a little bit more about later, was, was justification by faith. And since that time, more and more truth has been restored to the church. How many of you believe there are things in the Bible that we don't see yet? They're in there. Now, I'm not, you know, not talking about anything extra-biblical. They're in there, but we just don't see them. Because apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you can't see it. Luther was illuminated by the Holy Spirit to see justification by faith. Others came along and were illuminated to see other truths. But those truths that had been lost began to be restored to the church. Are you with me so far? See, because that's, 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 the, that's the principle upon which I am basing what I'm teaching today, is this principle of restoration. All right? Questions, comments, anything from you guys? Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, well, you know, when, you really, can, you know, you have to look at what happened, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but what happened in, in, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, accepted Christianity. And that that was, was beginning to change, people. where you then had the blending of church and state began. That would be the official mm, yeah, Well, I don't know that it, that's official, but that is a, that is a clear demarcation point. That is when you have the beginning of the Roman church. Yes. So. Um, any other questions? You had, you had a question. I 
Oh, okay. It almost seems like some of it is reflective of that, like, America was just so, like, it's like when we get um, stable and, like, we can kind of take control of things ourselves and there's no persecution, you know, then things get complex and we create these things that God never really, really intended. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like we become comfortable, so then we have to create our own, like, religion. Yeah. So yeah. it almost feels like that's what happened in America. You know, what unfortunately happens is that that cultures have taken Christianity and they have shaped it by their cultural perspective. Um, that certainly was true. You know, again, you're talking about <coughs> what happened when, with the Roman Empire and the church. Um, a lot of things were brought over from the Roman religious system into the church. You know, um, you know the, one of the titles for the Pope, and again, this I'm not, I, again, I'm not anti-Catholic. I'm just saying, you know, you're, you just can't ignore history. One of the titles for the Pope is Pontifus Maximus. The Pontifus Maximus goes all the way back to the, to the Roman uh, worship. The, the one who was overseeing the religious life of the Romans was the Pontifus Maximus. It was a, an elected office that was held for life. Julius Caesar, during the time, the latter part of the Roman Republic, was the Pontifus Maximus. That's before he ever became the dictator. He was the Pontifus Maximus. He was over the religious life. That is the, that is the title, one of the titles that the Pope carries. You know, when you begin looking at these things, you begin to see that what the Roman Catholic Church did was, was, was took many things from paganism and attempted to Christianize them. And they make no bones about that. I mean, they are honest about it. But, you know, you, you just, you know, we need to recognize that. Where do these things come from? But see, that is, the, that is what happens is the culture will begin to shape Christianity. And so what is our culture? What is, the, what is our culture really all about? Our culture is one of, of, of economic... Um, Capitalism. So we've made the church. How do we measure churches? We measure them by the number of people and the amount of money they bring in. Hello? You know, I mean, think about how the church begins to measure things in the same way that the world system measures it. See? We have our celebrities. Hello? See, we have all, we measure things, man, that's a successful church, you know, because look at the, look at the size of their building, look at the amount of money they bring in, you know, they have, they have uh, 8,000 people on Sunday morning. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, I'm just saying that's not, that should not be the way that we measure things. We get that from our culture, see, and you go to, 
You know, I mean, when, when the British Empire ruled the world, I mean, and they exported Christianity to the nations of the earth, they go into, they go into Africa, you know, they go into Africa, and they, they, <laughs> they end up taking these black Africans and teaching them uh, how to have a three o'clock tea time, how to wear white shirts and, and, and neckties. You know, they imposed their culture upon the, the Africans in Africa. Instead of bringing the gospel and letting that gospel fit in in a proper way to the culture. You follow what I'm trying to say there? You know, I think that answers your question, or at least is a, I don't know, follows your comment, let me put it that way. I know we're going to get to it. Oh, you can't ignore, see, you can't ignore the importance of technology in how technology affected things. Yeah. Just like today, I mean, you know, we have now, through the internet, think of, I mean, things have greatly changed from, you know, from when I was starting in ministry, you know. I started in ministry at 22 years old. I went on the radio. I had a radio program. I wouldn't even think of spending money on radio now. Why would you do that? Because there's other means of communication that are much effect, more effective and c- certainly cost less as well. But those kind of things, you know. But that was, a, that was a means of getting our message out then, you know. I mean, when I came along, you know, it was the early days of the I mean, cassette tapes. I probably still have 800 cassette tapes because, <laughs> I mean, you know, it just like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, everybody had cassette tapes. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was hearing, uh, I don't know if you know who Bob Mumford is. Bob Mumford was talking about, he said, you know, back in the early 70s, uh, he, was, he heard about the, this was the beginning of video cassette recording. And this was in its very early stages. And he heard about that and saw, man, this is a great, this is going to, this would be a great means of, of uh, taking our message, making it available to Bible studies all around the world. You know, we can be teaching through video cassettes. And so he spent, which was a lot of money back then, he spent about $600 to go to this seminar, him and another brother, to go to a seminar to learn about video cassettes and everything. He shows up at this thing. He's the only Christian, him and the brother with him are the only Christians there. Everyone else is a pornographer. The pornographic industry knew right from the very beginning this is a major means of getting our message out. Whatever that message is. But you know, I mean, what I'm saying is technology cannot be ignored in the study of the advancement of the church as well. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, now, let me say a few things, too. Now, again, this is, this is a generalized pattern. 
this, this decline and restoration pattern. That's generalized. That does not mean that in those first 1,500 years, there were not some great men and great women. Does not mean that the church did not wrestle with some issues that they brought great clarity on. Does not mean any of that. But it just means as a general pattern, there began to be things lost to the church. Now, in the very beginning, we have the, the, the uh, let me just kind of look at my notes here and see what I want to talk about. I tell you what, there's only so much we can deal with, and I want to focus on just certain things that I think oh, would be a benefit to us. Look with me, there is a, I sent this, I think I sent it the other day. It's, it's this thing, Christological Controversies. Do you see that? It's there toward the end. Because this is one of, this, this is the positive, this is one of the positive things that happened. You know, one of the positive things that happened was in the first centuries, in the first uh, four centuries or so of the church, there was some really wrestling with understanding, understanding some theological truth that if, if it had not been wrestled with, it had not been adjusted and understood and laid as a foundation, future generations would have been adrift. One of the things that is very interesting to me is the great minds that God brought together in the early days of the church, after the apostles, what we call the time of the early church fathers. Um, they were men that recognized that as we deal with truth, in particular, the truth they were dealing with was the nature of Christ. How do we understand Jesus? How do we understand him in terms of being God and man? How is he both at the same time? How does that how is that presented to us in the scriptures? And how is that to be theologically understood? Because it's like, if we don't get that right, you extrapolate it out over several hundred years, and we are going to miss the target by a mile. It's like when they shot, you know, the, the rocket to the moon, you know, they had to know exactly, you know, they had to get all the mathematical calculations exactly right or because just being off a little bit meant that in that trajectory they were going to miss it by, by many miles. And so they wrestled with this issue of Christology. And so let me just kind of go through some of these things. This is more, this is, this is, this is, um, this is theology in the early centuries. This is the major theological issues that they dealt with, okay? So, 
we have different terms here. Let me explain what we're, what we're dealing with. Early on, there came a false teaching emerged called docetism. Coming from the Greek word to appear. And this appeared very early on in the church, this doctrine. And it was the idea that Jesus only appeared to be a man. He was not really a man. He was God, which we recognize. But he only only seemed to have taken on human form. Now that was a major teaching among a group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics, coming from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, knowledge. And what the Gnostics were saying, the Gnostics said they had special knowledge of God. And one of the, Gnosticism was the first heretical group that the church had to deal with. Now the problem when you start looking at Gnosticism is this. There were so many different forms of it that you can't nail down what Gnostics believed. Because some Gnostics believe this, other Gnostics believe that. Um, you know, it's kind of like trying to nail jello to the wall sometimes when you try to define Gnosticism. But it is, it is, it is one of the false teachings that is addressed even in the epistles of the New Testament. Paul, in writing to Colossae, is the, in the book of Colossae, uh, Colossians is dealing with a form of Gnosticism. Uh, John, in his epistles, deals with a form of Gnosticism. In fact, it seems that John is dealing with this whole thing of, of Docetism because he says anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, right? is of the spirit of the Antichrist. See? So, again, this idea of Gnosticism, this idea of Docetism, rather, Docetism was this idea that Jesus only appeared to be a man. Now, we recognize that is the first of the, of the false teachings. Then we had a group come along called the Ebionites, which we don't know why they're called Ebionites. Because the word ebion is a, is a word meaning poor. And this group got labeled the Ebionites. I don't know why they called them. They, nobody knows why they called them that today. But we, we, that was their title. But what Eb, the Ebionites denied was they denied the divinity of Christ. So just like you have one group, you know, that comes along that goes too far one way denies the humanity of Christ, denies that he was really a man, then you have another group that goes too far the other way and says, no, he was, he was only a man. Well, obviously, we recognize from the scriptures and has always been the doctrine of the church 
that Christ was uh, fully God and fully man. Then we have, and again, I'm just going through these notes here, but we have the, the Marci- Marcionism, the, um, which was uh, a teaching that arose up from a man by the name of Marcion. That's why it's called Marcionism. Marcion taught that, he taught that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than what we encounter with Christ in the New Testament. That what Jesus really came to do was to, was, was to, to refute that the God Yahweh was, was the correct representation of God. That Jesus comes along to save us from Yahweh. Um, and so you really, have, you really have then this, what's called ditheistic. You have two, two different gods. And again, you say, well, that's, that's, that's so far out. Who would, who, would, who would accept that? How many of you know there is a mentality among some people within the church that comes very close to that. How many of you ever heard the God of the Old Testament? He was a God of judgment. Say, and the God of the New Testament, Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, God of mercy. See, and they are kind of juxtaposed against one another in a lot of people's thinking. There's a certain amount of Marcionism that, that has hung over and all. There's a lot of things about Marcion we could say that I'm just going to kind of skip over. But then we have this idea, this, this the, called dynamic monarchianism. This was the idea that, that um, I guess, again, there's things here in the notes I don't want to have to, I just don't want to get into right now except to say that this was the idea that Jesus was born a man and at his baptism became God. He became the Son of God. He was adopted. It's called adoptionism. That he was adopted as the Son of God at his baptism. So that's, again... um, Another false teaching. One, one that's the, the, the one that called modalistic monarchianism, do you see that one? That's the one that's probably still around today more than any of these others. Because that's the idea. That's the idea you hear that is a denial of the divine trinity that says... Uh, that, that the Father became the Son and the Son became the Holy Spirit. There are, there are some people on TV that teach that, by the way. You know, there are some people that have that view. That's, and, and when we get into talking about the early days of the Pentecostal movement, 
that became a, 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 a dividing point. How many have you ever heard of the United Pentecostal Church? United, they're united. They, the idea of united does not mean they're together. The idea of the united really is that they believe in a united Godhead. Yes. Is that the same as oneness Pentecostalism? Yes, yes. Oneness Pentecostalism, yeah. Yeah, it's the idea that, that there's not a divine trinity, that there's only one in the Godhead. It's, it's the, the Father who became the Son, who became the Holy Spirit. And again, that, was, that goes back to the early days of the church, and that was wrestled with and addressed. The opposite of that, the opposite is called tritheism. What is tritheism? What do you think that means? Tri means what? Three, right? And theism, three gods. So it's the idea that we have, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are like three, they are three different gods who all work together. You know, it's like, it's like having a, a really good board. You know, and they never disagree. They always get along. They're always of the same mind. But you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're not really one in person. They are simply one in togetherness. And that's also a false teaching. Another false teaching that, that they had to wrestle with. Another false teaching that they had to wrestle with was uh, called Arianism. And that's the one that brought about the first church council, the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea um, was, was called to address this very issue. The, 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 the Arian teaching said this, that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. That God the Father created the Son. Now in that, they would say this, now he created him long before the earth was created, that it was Christ who created everything after that. But it was God the Father who created Christ the Son. And in fact, many people, many people were converted to Christianity in those early centuries under that kind of false teaching. Didn't mean they weren't Christians, but they had been taught wrongly. See, what's wrong with the idea? If you say, well, you know, yeah, back in somewhere way back in eternity past, God the Father created the Son. Christ the Son. What's wrong with that? It does. It does. It makes him less than God the Father. Now, see, they would say, no, we recognize Jesus as God. But he's not God, see, on the same level that the Father is. If the Father can create the Son, then who is superior. There's a lack of equality there. So that 
uh, again, and that, that teaching is with us. That's, 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 by the way, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses ultimately teach. You know, they teach this idea that God the Father created God the Son. But that had to be addressed at the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea was, was the first, it was the first church council since the one we read about in the book of Acts. When they, when they called that church council, it was called by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Because Constantine recognized that as he um, began to uh, 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 encourage the growth of Christianity, that not all Christians thought alike. They weren't all on the same page. And so what he, he, he thought, this has got to be dealt with. And so they have this church council. And that church council then um, takes on this issue. Now, I think Constantine thought, I mean, it, it, it seems to be a lot of, of things that appear that he was on the side of those advocating Arianism. By the way, this is not the same Arianism that the Nazis had. That's a different word altogether, just so you know, because I've had people ask that. No, this Arianism, it was started by a man by the name of Arius. That's why it's called Arianism. And it was this idea that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. And it appears that Constantine, the Roman emperor, was on the side of those taking that position. But on the other side, the leading man opposing this was a man by the name of Athanasius. How many of you have ever heard of Saint Athanasius? Athanasius was, uh, he, had an interesting, he had an interesting nickname. His, in, his nickname was the Black Dwarf. By the way, let me say this, just so you know, from the very, you know what, a lot of these people that we read about in the early days of the church, um, whether it's Augustine or Athanasius or uh, uh, Tertullian, um, let me tell you something. We paint, they, I've seen pictures painted of these people, and they paint them like white Europeans. They were not white Europeans. They were North Africans. They were, they were dark-skinned. They were what we would consider black. See? And, I mean, it's obvious Athanasius' nickname was the Black Dwarf, right? You know? And, and, but we, we uh, this, is, this is just another thing, and I don't want to belabor the point. But, but we, we white, we... We've made Christianity a little bit whiter than it should be. Yeah, you know, we've whitewashed these people, you know. And actually, I mean, when you look at the growth of the church in those early years in places like Ethiopia and so forth, it was phenomenal. But a lot of that gets ignored because we focus on, you know, oh, well, we fo we, we, we've lost the blackness, if you will, of Christianity, you know? Anyway, this isn't Black History Month, but I talked about that last month. 
Yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, that's another that's another story that goes along with it. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this church council, which again seemed to be weighted in favor of Arius, ended up going to the group that was with Athanasius, and Arianism was deemed to be heretical. And it didn't mean it disappeared, but it was considered a heresy. Then we have the Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism, um, (laughs) let let me talk about what that view that they had. There were those that had this view that that Jesus was God in a man's suit. You know, like, you ever been to, like, Disney World or anywhere like that? Or you ever been to, you ever been to the Royals game and you've seen Slugger? Now, I don't want to disillusion anybody here, but Ryan, Slugger is not a real lion. <laughs> And there were those that Apollinarianism was kind of like that idea that, that, that Jesus was God going around in a man costume, you know. Well, obviously, we recognize that Jesus was not just wearing human flesh, that there was more than that, that he was fully a man. And then Nestorianism. It gets a little bit more complicated as we move along here. Uh, Nestorianism. Nestorianism is the idea of this. It's the idea that there are two, two persons and two natures. Just like the idea. We just talked about the one, you know, of, uh, of you know, Slugger, right? And you can picture that. How many of you have ever seen somebody... Playing a, two men playing a horse in a horse costume, <laughs> right? That's kind of what Nestorianism was, is the idea that there are two natures, two persons in one person. You know, two personalities, two natures in this one person. That, again, was recognized as, as, as false. So my point, though, and I, again, I, don't, I, mean, I think I'm, I'm probably going to need to just move on here, but because uh, I don't want to belabor all this, I just want to point out this is the kind of stuff they, 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 they spent the first three or four centuries examining, trying to understand, trying to wrestle with. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there, it, it, it wasn't as if they did not put a great deal of intellectual energy into understanding these things. But sometimes, you know, we look back at, the, at the, the early church and we fail to see the intellectual energy that was engaged in much of what they were doing. It's why we can still go back and read the early church fathers and, 
and draw a great deal of things from them. Now, were there at the same time things that, that got lost? Yes. Were there some things that, that you know, they were, were they perfect in every way? Not by any means. Did they all agree on everything? Not at all. But there was this, they, they do play a significant part in uh, our, our understanding. All right, I'm going to stop. What's that? And because they did that, Yes. Yes. See, see, that's we don't have to reinvent all that stuff, right? We don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel because they they did that labor for us, and we still gain from that. And and when we talk about the Protestant Reformation and all the things that came after that, they always look back with with great respect upon the early church fathers. All right, well, let's take a very quick break. I think you need that. And um, we'll, we'll move on here to something else.